The reading from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of the peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No, or sorry, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, we began studying Romans chapter 3 by considering together a series of rhetorical questions that the Apostle Paul proposed, concluding with that question, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner, and why not do evil that good may come? Now, in answer to that final question in that series, Paul gave a simple, very straightforward, although some might argue kind of judgy, assessment of those who were accusing him of preaching that heresy. He wrote, their condemnation is just. And as I said last Sunday, he was able to say this because if he had been preaching what they were accusing him of preaching, if he had been preaching, let us do evil that good may come, if he had been preaching a kind of a hyper-grace version of the gospel, with that understanding that we really don't have to be concerned with living lives of gratitude, of demonstrating our understanding of what Christ has done for us, we can just do whatever we want, and grace covers it all. If he had been preaching that, as some no doubt have and do, his condemnation would have been just. But he was not. He was being slanderously reported as saying that. And so he says their condemnation is just. But having made that declaration in verse 8, Paul came back in verse 9, kind of like that famous TV detective. Just one more thing. One more rhetorical question before we move off of this subject of sin and begin to follow through with the reason why we've been talking about this for so long. He asked, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And that makes an interesting bookend to the question in verses 1 through 8, because in answer to the first question, then what advantage has the Jew? Paul wrote much in every way, and there are so many ways that we could just go off the rails with that answer until we consider the question and answer in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews? And we could add, are we Christians? Any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So as Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, there was an advantage in being the people of God. That's true. There was an advantage. They had the very oracles of God. They had the covenant of circumcision. They had been bound to God by covenant as his people, and that was certainly an advantage 
But Lloyd-Jones went on, that does not mean that they were in a favored position with respect of the whole subject of the wrath of God or of salvation. And truly in that sense, there is no advantage for anyone, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, doesn't matter. There is no advantage. In that sense, all, both Jews and Greeks, which was Paul's way of saying everybody in the whole world, because there were only two kinds of people in those days, Jews and Greeks, all are under sin. Or as we will read a little later in this service and also next week in Romans 3, verses 22 and 23, there is no distinction. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile in this argument that Paul is developing, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This applies to every human being who has ever lived and to every human being who ever will. It applies, as I already said, to Jew and Gentile, male and female, old and young, rich, poor, wise, foolish, influential and insignificant in the world's eyes. It doesn't matter. It applies to me and it applies to you. All are under sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Of course, there is a remedy, and we're going to spend a lot of time exploring that remedy as we proceed on through the book of Romans, but it's expressed pretty succinctly at the beginning of verse 22, where Paul wrote that this remedy is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And we know we're headed in that direction, and of course, the tendency is always just skip to the end, get to the good parts. Let's not talk so much about sin. Let's move straight onto grace. But the truth is, if we want to understand the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and why that's different than the kind of self-righteousness that so many people in the world cling to, we have to understand that God has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And the fact that we have been transferred to something only makes sense in the light of the fact that we have been transferred out of something. We have been delivered, Paul said in Colossians 1.13, from the domain of darkness. So this expression in Romans chapter 3, under sin, would be a fair description of dwelling in that domain of darkness. It's a fair description of the lot of every person in the world who is not in Christ. In the words of the old Puritan Matthew Henry, to be under sin is to be under the guilt of sin, as under a sentence, a legal declaration of guilt, under it as by a bond by which they are bound over to eternal ruin and damnation. We are slaves to sin and under the tyranny of the devil. Under it is a burden that will sink them to the lowest hell, under the government and dominion of sin, under it as under a tyrant and cruel taskmaster, enslaved to it, under it as under a yoke, under the power of it, sold to work wickedness. That seems like a lot, but in reality we could go on because all, both Jews and Greeks, all are under sin. And it's in this sense that Paul declared in verses 10 through 12, citing scripture as his source, that none is righteous. 
No one lives in perfect conformity to God's law, and perfect conformity to God's law is the standard. There is no lesser standard. It's been said so many times, it should go without saying again, but comparing ourselves to ourselves, comparing ourselves to others, means nothing. You can always look around at the world and find somebody who's worse than you, and say, compared to, well, you know, the classic, right, Adolf Hitler, I'm a pretty decent person all in all. But the truth of the matter is, you can always look around at the people in the world and find someone who is better than you too. And it makes no difference because in the end, we are looking to the perfect standard of God's law given to his people. We are looking to the reflection of that perfect standard in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not to some arbitrary human standard that we impose and not to the righteousness that we see in other people. We are looking to Jesus Christ. And when we come to understand that, then the next statement that Paul makes is obvious. None is righteous. And just in case we didn't get that, no, not one. Paul's saying, I'm not saying none is righteous in the sense that not very many are righteous. I'm saying none is righteous in the sense that not even one. Because it's not a matter of being a little bit better or a little bit worse than someone else as we have seen. That is not the point. In the end, the standard of righteousness to which we have to measure up is the perfect righteousness and holiness of God's law. And no one other than Jesus ever has and no one other than Jesus ever will. In fact, no one even comprehends what that would look like. As the apostle, and indeed the word of God makes clear, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Now I know we want to object. We want to say, but I know people who have sought for God. I know people who have spent a lifetime in their search for God. They've tried all the world's different religions. They're pursuing this, they're pursuing that. They're going first in one direction and then in another. And it may be true that we do know people who have been seeking for God, but if that is true, then it's like that hymn that we occasionally sing, I sought the Lord, and afterward, I knew he moved my soul to seek him as he was seeking me. If we have known people who were truly seeking for God, it's because we have known people that God was at work in their hearts by the power of his Holy Spirit, drawing them to himself, seeking them by the power of his grace. Because someone who truly seeks for God does so only because the Holy Spirit is already at work in his or her heart, drawing them inexorably to the Father through repentance and faith in Jesus. If that's not the case, if the Holy Spirit is not at work, if God is not drawing them, then they may be seeking something. No doubt they are. People seek for all kinds of things. We seek for happiness. We seek for inner peace. We seek for fulfillment, affirmation, and a host of other things. But outside of God's work in their hearts, they are not 
truly seeking for God because no one, not even one, truly seeks for God. Rather, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And we need to acknowledge as we move on the universals in this passage because they carry on in this string of quotations that Paul gives. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Of course, to understand that, we have to have some understanding of what it means to truly do good, and we don't have time this morning. But what Paul is speaking of here is the total depravity of the entire human race. The ubiquitousness of sin in every descendant of Adam and Eve. As we confess in the canons of Dort, all people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to such reform. That is who we are in the flesh as children of Adam and Eve. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The thing is, sometimes we like to turn that idea on its head. Some of you will know what I'm talking about, but in the movie The Incredibles, the the villain, the little sidekick guy, talks to Mr. Incredible about his plan to make everybody in the world super. And his evil plot is, when everybody is super, no one is. And sometimes we look at that, when we say all have sinned, we come at it from that standpoint of, well, if everybody has sinned, then no one is a sinner. The fault lies with the human race, we say, not the individual. The sin is Adam's, not mine. If being a sinner is simply part of my identity of who I am, then how could anyone, including the Almighty God, find fault with the way he made me? If all are sinners, and further, if only he who is without sin among us can cast the first stone, then doesn't it follow that there are no stones to be thrown? We like to reason that way, but sadly, at least for those who want to go off in that direction, in the next several verses, Paul went on to explain the effects of this kind of universal depravity in our individual lives. And these are hard words to hear. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, coming to these verses, wrote, Are you ready for me to hold before you now the most terrifying mirror that you have ever looked into in your life? I warn you now, if you want to be on good terms with yourselves, you had better read no further, and it's true. Because Paul had made a list like this already back in chapter 1, but here in chapter 3 of the book of Romans, he is going to paint with a biblical brush, quote after quote from the Holy Scriptures, and it does not paint a pretty picture. First of all, we see sin 
in our words. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. That's a quote of Psalm 5, verse 9. The venom of asps is under their lips. Psalm 140, verse 3. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Psalm 10, 7. He's taking these quotes from the Psalms and from the word of the prophets, and he's saying, this is who we are. It's not a problem of, you know, being not quite as good. A golden vessel who's just a little bit tarnished. Their throat is an open grave, Paul says. What proceeds from an open grave? What did they say at the tomb of Lazarus when Jesus said, roll away the stone? They said, Lord, it's been four days. It's going to stink. It's going to smell really bad. Paul is quoting from the psalmist saying that's, that's what's coming out of our hearts. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The words that we speak are not words that build people up in their holy faith or in the grace of Christ. They're words that tear people down. There are words that strike like a snake with their poison. They're words that reflect the bitterness that has taken root in our own hearts and then overflows to the defilement of many, according to the writer of the Hebrews. We see sin in our words. And then in verses 15 to 18, sin in our deeds, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. From Proverbs chapter 1, verse 16, and Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8. People are quick to run to what is evil. We've seen before how the light came. Jesus came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light. They ran away from the light because their deeds were evil. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36, verse 1. In the words that we speak, in the deeds that we do, in the way that we live our lives as people who are not in Christ, people who are in Adam, sin is pervasive in everything. Another way of envisioning this is that Paul is basically saying that as individuals under sin... We are under sin from head to toe and back again. He started with our mouths, he went to our feet, and then he came back to our eyes and he said there is no fear of God before our eyes. We are totally immersed in sin. And again, we want to object. We want to step up to the bar and argue with God. We want, like the lawyer who came to Jesus in Luke chapter 17, to justify ourselves to say to God, we're really not that bad. There's nothing here that merits eternal damnation. There's nothing here that merits that level of judgment, our faults and our weaknesses. We wouldn't even really want to call them sins. Are all of the civilized variety, the acceptable kind of sins. And surely then the good that we must do surely outweighs any little peccadilloes in our lives. But according to verse 19, 
we know that whatever the law says, and he's referring back to those quotes that he just listed off. That's what the law says. That's what the law says about us. And whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. As the apostle wrote earlier, all, both Jews and Greeks, those who are under the law and those who did not regard themselves as under the law, all are under sin. And then again in verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, Occasionally we'll hear someone say, you know, if someone could just live a perfect life, if we could be born into this world and never fall into sin, at least never fall into sin until after we were old enough to be held accountable for it in some people's view, then it would be possible to somehow not need salvation through faith in Christ. But the apostle wrote in another place that if a commandment could have been given that would have imparted life, if it was even possible, for a single human being to be justified by the works of the law, then Christ died for nothing. That was never the point of the law. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Not through the law comes righteousness. As I said, in fact, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We have to understand this if we want to truly understand the gospel. Because that's where Paul has been going right from day one when we began this study of Romans. All of this weighty talk of sin and condemnation and death is there not by accident. It's there so that we can understand the glory of God's grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Lord's day one in the catechism having already taught us that our only comfort in life and in death is to be found in knowing that we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ, goes on to ask the question, what must you know in order to know that? What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And we say three things, and this is the first. First, how great my sin is and misery are. If we want to live and die in the joy of the comfort of belonging to God, body and soul, in life and in death, the authors of our catechism and indeed scripture itself tells us, then we need to know what it is that we have been saved from. You can know the grace, glory, and goodness of salvation. And if you want to know it, you have to know what you have been saved from. These sins of word and deed that Paul's been talking about here in Romans 3 are our sins. They're not sins of other people out there in the world. They're our sins. They are the things that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. We know this because the Apostle John wrote in another place, if we say that we have no sin, if we say that sin is not in our nature, that we're just not bad people, we're basically good, that we are mostly righteous in ourselves, that we're not the sort of people who say and do evil things, 
If we say we have no sin, John goes on, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And how descriptive that is of so many people in the world when we approach them with the gospel from that sort of glib evangelical point of view. Hey, wouldn't you like to have a friend like Jesus? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And they come back saying, I I don't really need to be saved. What would I need to be saved from? I have a pretty good life and I'm a pretty good person. A couple of verses later, John wrote again, if we say that we have not sinned, and notice the difference between those two statements. If we say we have no sin, and here if we say that we have not sinned, if we deny that that sinful fleshly nature within us has ever led us to do or say things that were objectionable to God, if we deny that we have actually committed these sins of word and deed, these acts of lawlessness against the Lord, not only do we deceive ourselves, as we saw earlier, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. If we say, well, what God's word says about us, that there is none righteous, not even one, none who understands, none who seeks for God, no one who does good, well, that's kind of extreme, certainly doesn't characterize me, I'm a decent person. If we say that, we make God out to be a liar. In Romans chapter one, describing the final degradation of the human race, we looked at this months ago, Paul wrote, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, that one stings, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. When we went through Romans 1, I think I tried to highlight this, but sometimes we get stuck in that chapter, looking back at earlier verses and saying, there are these really big sins that are really terrible, sins of a sexual nature. But when Paul's winding this all up, he comes back to this and he says, you know what? They're gossips. If you can't say amen, as Vody Bauckham says, say ouch. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Wow. That one, too, gets lumped in with this great downgrade of evil that has affected the entire human race, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Again, as Lloyd-Jones wrote, let me put it plainly. If you do not accept this, and if you do not accept this description of yourself apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, You are not yet convinced and convicted of sin, and you are not a believer in Christ, though you may have thought you were. This description of man is the simple truth, the horrible truth. This is what sin has brought us to. Every last one of us, everyone who ever lived 
from Genesis chapter 1, when God created man in his own image down to this very day and on to the end of the world. We need to understand and believe that outside of Christ, and those are important words, outside of Christ, under sin, we were and are that sort of people. Every one of us. And only through the grace of God in Christ Jesus is there forgiveness and freedom. Our faithful Savior has fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood. What does that mean? If we think, yeah, but, you know, I had like five and somebody over there had like 5,000 for Jesus. It doesn't matter. He has fully paid for all our sins for my sins, for your sins, for the sins of great sinners and for the sins of those who seemed to walk in a kind of obscurity when it regards to all that evil. He has fully paid for all of our sins with his precious blood and has set us free from the tyranny of the devil. Our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, has set us free. That's why we had to see this so we'd understand what we were set free from. He has set us free from these things, not so that we can be free of the penalty of them and continue to walk in them, not so that our throats can remain an open grave that just vomits out gossip and slander and hateful speech, and it's all covered by the grace of Christ. He has set us free from these things so that we don't have to walk in them anymore so that we can live lives of gratitude for the glory of God and God alone. We need to know that. We need to know what it is that Jesus did when he died on the cross to save us from our sin. And we need to believe it. And we need to walk in gratitude for what Christ has done. But there's one more thing. We also need to understand that this remains the world in which we live. Because we all have this tendency to look now at family and friends and people in the world and think, well, let's not be judgy. They're not that bad. And that may even be true, but it's not about whether we are good or bad people in the eyes of ourselves or in the eyes of others. It's not about whether someone might someday be willing to stand up at a memorial service and say, well, he was a really good man, beloved by all who knew him. This is not a world filled with people who are basically good but a little bit misguided. This is a world of people filled with all manner of unrighteousness. A world of people who need above all to hear that message of salvation that we have heard. That message of salvation that says it's not to be found by being better and doing better. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is a world of people who having been brought face to face with their sins may by the grace of God be made ready and by the power of the Holy Spirit to finally hear that now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus alone. May God give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, and words to proclaim this gospel of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, if we truly knew ourselves, if we truly knew the blackness and sinfulness of our hearts, if that sinfulness itself didn't make us always give ourselves a pass, we would fall on our knees and worship you for your mercy and your grace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we so often take for granted what he has done and we so often take for granted what he is still doing. We so often take for granted the mercy that you have shown us by bringing us to yourself through faith in Christ and then the grace that you show us as so very often we just continue to live that same old, same old kind of life. But this morning, Father, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. Give us ears to hear this message as difficult as it is and as ugly a picture as it paints of who we are outside of Christ. That, Father, when we realize that in Christ and through faith in him, you see us just as if we had never sinned or been sinners just as if we were perfect, as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. We may rejoice. We may be glad. We may give you all praise and honor and glory and blessing. For worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive this from our hands. We pray in his precious name. Amen. <laughs> 